Hello and welcome to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series was developed as a part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest is Tim League, co-founder of the Alamo Draft House and director of Fantastic Fest. The Alamo Draft House Theater isn't like many other theaters. Instead, it offers food and drinks served during the screening and a rotating schedule of special events. The theaters began in Austin, but they've increasingly expanded across the country to other locations, including a new one in San Francisco. In addition to this, League is heavily involved with both Fantastic Fest, an annual genre film festival held in Austin, and Drafthouse Films, a distribution company which has put out a number of films, including 2010's Four Lions, 2013's The Act of Killing, and its 2014 follow-up, The Look of Silence. League spoke on November 9, 2015, on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Greetings, everyone. Uh, we are very fortunate to have as our guest Tim League, who's going to be talking about the many hats he wears with the Alamo Draft House and Fantastic Fest and New Ventures. Um, but before we get to that, uh, first, let me just thank you all for joining us for RTF 347C, AKA Media Industry Conversations. Uh, and I want to, as always, thank my TAs, Kyle Rather and Tim Piper, and my collaborator in teaching, Sydney McCreary, as well as the RTF department and the Moody College of Communication. And you can see, oh, how conveniently flashing by uh, the website for, we have three more guests after this, uh, and then we will wrap up our series. Uh, but now, let me go ahead and just give you a little bit of information about Mr. League. Uh, it's great to have him speak with us today about everything from distribution to exhibition, film markets, uh, film festivals, uh, and we're going to walk through his trajectory with the Alamo Draft House, uh, how Draft House has evolved, as well as his role with the Fantastic Fest and other various ventures that are emerging, as I mentioned before, and just talk through how the industry landscape is changing in all of these different ways from production through distribution through exhibition. So please join me in welcoming Mr. League. Hello. <laughs> um, so let's just start off uh, with the very uh, general question of where or how you sort of ended up at the point of starting the draft house, mm -hmm. what your prior media related experience hmm. was. I didn't have any experience in anything really. Uh, <laughs> I. I, was, I went to school at, at Rice in Houston. I studied mechanical engineering. Um, I got a, um, a BS in mechanical engineering, but a BA in art and art history. And so it sort of shows I wasn't maybe totally dedicated to engineering, but engineering was an easier job to get um, after school. So I worked for Shell Oil for two years. Um, and I knew pretty much day one that I was not going to retire from Shell Oil because I didn't like it at all. And that's that's when I started my future career planning a little bit too late. I should have thought of it when I was in high school, maybe. Um, but then on my way to work uh, at Shell, there was an abandoned movie theater. And then one day, there was a for lease sign on the, the movie theater. And seven days later, I signed a lease. Is so. this in Houston? Or? No, this is in Bakersfield, okay. California. Yeah. So okay. that was 23. 
uh, and didn't know anything uh, about anything. I had had very few jobs. I was a paper boy, I was a bus boy, I ran Ethernet cable, and I was an engineer, and then I was a theater owner. Yeah, and if you were 23 <coughs> when you started, you, your engineer life must have been very short. Two years, two years, <laughs> yeah. Um, so what was that theater like? Um, it was a single screen, classic uh, old theater. It was built in the 1940s. It was an independent theater. Uh, it's kind of a family theater, uh, and then it closed down, I think, in the early 1980s. Okay. Um, and then just sat there vacant, and the property sold, and somebody was trying to get a new tenant, and I was crazy enough to think that I could do it. Um, and we showed, um, mainly we showed art house films, um, uh, but it was a total, complete financial disaster. Like, it just didn't work at all. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we ran it for two years until we could figure out how to move on and then opened up Alamo Draft House here. Yeah, so how did how much did you change the concept and practices from that theater to moving with, into the Draft House? Well, in Bakersfield, we didn't have any employees. It was just, uh, it was me to start out with, and then um, I convinced my girlfriend uh, to quit her job. She was a research biologist in San Francisco. So she quit her job and moved down to help the theater and then we got, in the middle of that, we got married. Um, uh, uh, but I, a lot of the ideas that we've done, you know, uh, things like silent films with live musical accompaniment and, you know, classic films, um, uh, cult films, that all started there, but the food component wasn't really there. We, we would occasionally partner with restaurants to pair meals with films, mm -hmm. and, um, but that didn't come until Austin. Okay, and for, for our students who may not know what the Draft House was like mm -hmm. when it was first started, maybe you can tell us how much you think it's evolved from when you first launched it in 1997 in Austin. Uh, you know, the, the Ritz is about like what it was for, for the most part. It was a single screen theater, and um, it just showed a calendar run of, of uh, a weird mix of all kinds of films. And the Ritz still kind of carries on that tradition, although they have two screens. Um, the original theater, which is no longer a theater, um, it's it's kind of a crappy bar on Fourth uh, and Colorado. So, I mean, no offense, to, well, offense to the bar, but um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the, we we had a ten year lease that ended in two thousand and seven. So we opened nineteen ninety seven and two thousand and seven. That neighborhood got really fancy and expensive, and so our rent was going to go up by like two hundred and fifty percent. So instead of paying high rent, we just moved to Sixth Street and got a good deal there. And you opened uh, your second one around, what, 2004? The, the Village, right? I think it's 2001. 2001, okay. And how did you evolve the Draft House over time in terms of did you diversify what you were showing or ch expand your programming or events? I mean, I remember that a lot of this, from my own memory, was built in from the start. But from your perspective, did you change strategies at all? When we opened up the Village, that was when we first started doing new first-run movies, and so we ended up cannibalizing our original location, which showed second-run movies and, like, a hodgepodge of whatever, classic mm -hmm. movies to uh, um, foreign films, whatever. Um, so we ended up dropping kind of the second-run movies entirely from the downtown theater and doing a lot more specific types of programming, mm -hmm. so that was a, a bit of a shift when we found that we were stealing our own customers. <laughs> <coughs> 
Who did you um, like? Who do you think of as the draft house audience, or do you, or who is your draft house audience to the extent that you can say? Uh, it's. I don't think there's one specific audience. Or I think the the content sort of drives it, and it's. Um, you know, there was we do a show every Tuesday night of of horror films uh, at ten o'clock, and so there was one day at the Ritz where we had ex- the timing was such that we had Terror Tuesday walking down one set of stairs, and we. Uh, had the train wreck crowd rapping, walking down the other set of stairs, and it's like somehow these people—they're very different demographics. And so, at the same time, the theater can be just right for this set of people and for that set of people. And it's—it usually reflects individual programmers' tastes, mm-hmm. you know, on a show-by-show basis. So, as far as programming, <coughs> were you involved with the programming initially, and then you sort of phased out of it at a certain point, or I was the programming. You were the programming. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there was nobody else uh, for years. For probably the first five years, I was it. Um, uh, four years, probably. And um, so, my wife and I divided up the job responsibilities. So I did everything technical, um, uh, maintaining all the equipment in the building, and um, I was the projectionist. And so that meant I just stayed in the projection room, and during that time I did all the advertising and marketing and layout Mm -hmm. design um, and um, built the website, um, that kind of stuff. So, And then she handled the financial side of things, which is not my strong suit, um, and she was basically in charge of the staff. And how did you... Were the programming choices you made based mainly on your own personal taste or just trying to, like, how did you make those decisions? How, or how do your programmers now make the decisions? It's a mix of, it's, it's, it's funnest when you can program to your own tastes and when you can create an audience uh, uh, from nothing that, mm-hmm. is, that appreciates your, your taste and your curation. So that's the best. That makes the programmer the happiest. And if, as long as people come, uh, you know, it doesn't matter that much to me. I, w- I want to serve a broad base of people, and so that's usually reflected that we hire a broad base of types of people to program. Mm-hmm. Um, but in smaller markets, uh, like we have a theater in Kansas City, for example, where there's just one person there, and it's um, he has to program everything, um, and so some of it's to his taste, and some of it's not. He's just trying to, you know, make the theater profitable. So the programming is ha- happening out of the individual theaters for the most part. Yeah, I mean it's a big distinction. Um, you know, I I don't in my personal life I don't really uh, like chains that much, but I am one, so mm-hmm. I have a little bit of a personal dilemma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is, uh, like San Francisco is opening two weeks from now, we've hired um, a, a community liaison, we've hired a programmer, we've hired a chef, and we've hired a, a bartender. And they have complete creative control. They just have to hit certain numbers. So, like they have to hit the profitability numbers that we set out and the expense numbers that we set out. And as long as they're doing that, I'm not going to bother them. And that way it becomes sort of a local incarnation of a chain. Right, Let's right. see if it works. So, so uh, mo- these are franchises for the most part, or are they owned by Alamo? How does that um, work? The whole company <laughs> is set up as a franchise company. Okay. And so I own... Uh, six theaters personally, okay. but I'm a franchisee, and so I pay a royalty to the franchise company, which I also own. Um, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you know, but the ones that I don't own, they pay a franchise fee to the franchise company. So everybody pays ostensibly like 
uh, what rounds to 5% of gross sales to the franchise company, okay. including myself. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do, with the franchise structure, uh, when you're booking non-specific films, right, uh, not the art house films, not the independent films, like uh, how much is negotiated at the individual theater level versus through the sort of corporate level? For corporate level, um, things like the films that we release through Draft House Films, they're going to play them. Um, that's mandated. <laughs> okay. um, and then there's certain titles, like we'll select a title, like the Coen brothers have a new movie called Hail Caesar coming up February, first week in February. And so that goes into this program called Draft House Recommends, where it plays everywhere. And so we work uh, with a studio level to try to get more promotional push uh, um, behind that title. Um, apart from the ones, the handful of titles throughout the year that we mandate, um, each month there's a little bit of our, like a core programming package of three or four things mm -hmm. that all the theaters play. But the rest of it is all local decisions. Okay. So, like, the decision to play Spectre will be based on the individual. If somebody doesn't play Spectre, they're really <laughs> stupid. You know I mean? It's like, so that would be, I would question. It would be yes, funny if somebody be decided. They, they have the right to do that, but then they'd have to answer to the financial. Now, how do you deal with uh, the large chains? Like, how does that, do you feel like you're competing with them over movies or audience or how does that I barely deal with them at all yeah um, I I uh, uh, I <laughs> I'll occasionally go we have a, um, a trade organization called NATO um, uh, North American Theater Owners Association I will occasionally go I think I'm a nuisance to the big guys but I'm so small that it doesn't really matter I'm just like a pesky gnat you know <laughs> um, but I um, so I don't know any of them. I've met the CEO of Regal one time. And, um, <laughs> so do you feel like you're really in a different business from what they're doing? or? I mean, yes and no. Uh, I, there's certain things that I advocate for in terms of, um, I think, honestly, I think the, the motion picture exhibition business has gotten really lazy. Um, and so I'm outspoken on that front that, you should take the experience pretty seriously because mm -hmm. if you don't, then people will find other ways to absorb their content. And so I think it's everybody's responsibility to, to be fearful of that future. Right. Um, so uh, I don't know if that answers that question. but Well, no, and I remember you're uh, seeing the coverage of your speech to NATO or with NATO people. Way, was that a few years ago now, yeah, right? Yeah. Sort of. Reminding them of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk. Uh, I'll ask you some more about exhibition mm -hmm. in a little bit, but I'm curious how you evolved from the sort of theatrical and programming side of things uh, to distribution. Mm -hmm. How did that happen and um, why? You'll notice a trend that there's no like master plan, really, but uh, <laughs> there's, it, they ev it evolves, ideas evolve. And so for getting into distribution, I was hired to throw a party at Sundance for a movie called Troll Hunter, mm -hmm. um, which we world premiered at uh, Fantastic Fest, and it sold at Fantastic Fest. And they know that we like to throw parties, and so they hired us to throw the Sundance party. Uh, while was I, this? I don't know. It's many years ago. <laughs> a few years ago, okay. <clears throat> um, while I was there, I watched a movie called Four Lions, which uh, is a jihadi suicide bomber comedy. 
um, and I thought it was really funny. Um, okay. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's by this guy, Chris Morris, and I, I'm a huge fan of all of his TV work. He's a British TV um, creator. And so I just watched it because I'm a fan and I enjoyed it. And then six months later, I realized it had not sold. They were, look, they were asking for a million dollars at Sundance for it because it was semi-high profile. Um, uh, had Benedict Cumberbatch in it. Um, and so a buddy of mine, uh, Tom Quinn, uh, was at Magnolia, and his boss wouldn't let him buy it. And he got so pissed off uh, that he called me and said, you need to buy it. Because we had talked at one point about my interest in maybe someday getting into distribution. Mm-hmm. And so I did, yeah. Uh, and that was sort of a partnership between Magnolia. Magnolia was the invisible back office. So they actually handled a lot of the, the placement into Walmart and things like that. And then my team did all the creative and the marketing and advertising and theatrical booking. Um, so I enjoyed it. And I, I spent about nine months or so figuring out what it would look like to do it for real. And then we, we, we built a team and started doing it. Yeah, so maybe you can tell us about, like, what are the scope of your distribution operations, or at least what have they been until recently? Uh, do you go to certain places to look for content? Who do you work with to get this content? At what stage are you involved in the process of acquiring it? I'm still very personally involved in, in uh, acquiring the content. Uh, it's my money, so I write the check, so I'm going to make the final decision mm-hmm. on the call. Um, uh, almost exclusively, we get stuff out of festivals. Um, I, I attend five or six festivals a year, but the only three where it's a heavy density of buying is Toronto, Cannes Film Festival and Sundance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we look at every film that's playing. It's just, and with some of those, like um, Cannes, is the, Cannes is the biggest. So Cannes has the, the forward-facing festival where there's about 120 movies or so through all the various categories. Uh, but then like the dirty backside of Cannes where it's not the red carpet and tuxedos is all these little tiny theaters where there's uh, 2,000 movies screening. And mm-hmm. so it's this market and the festival where we go to seek out new content. So what's the size of your team that's uh, looking for content? Um, it's myself. Um, what's, um, what I've done with a lot of things is I've been able to leverage the, the larger army of Draft House for these ventures. So there's a direct relationship between Fantastic Fest, the festival that we produce, and Draft House Films. Mm-hmm. So for Fantastic Fest, we curate 75 genre features, um, and we're looking all year long. Mm-hmm. The festival just ended October 1st. October 2nd, we've already built our spreadsheet where we're tracking. You know, we track probably 1,000 movies a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has a seven-person programming like curation team, mm-hmm. of which I'm a, a very active member. And uh, my... Uh, COO of Draft House Films is also a member of that team. Okay. And so there's various, I don't know, sort of shortcuts. Anywhere, our bottom one is Z slash dead. That means that's we're, we're no longer looking at this. And then it's, it's super high targets, and then we've watched it. You know, we like it. We need to have more people watch it. It's various. So that's like a breathing, living document. Um, and so... There's only of that team. There's probably three, four people that make decisions on on content that we're going to actually buy. And do you, when you buy rights, do you buy North American theatrical? What what rights are you tending to acquire? 
we try to get as much as possible for as okay. long as possible. Okay. But that's, you know, that's where, you know, from the flip side, you probably want to have a sales agent, you know, because everybody's a jerk in this business. And, you know, if they sense weakness, <laughs> they'll just, there's this blood in the water, then it's all over. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so we've done deals where we take worldwide rights and uh, try to sell off what we can on those worldwide rights to other territories. Um, we'll buy worldwide and sell, we'll take the Netflix world deal and then um, carve out uh, whatever windows we need for, for North America or, or US. We've gone down to as much as just buying US theatrical, but that's a really dumb thing to do. I mean, <laughs> almost never do that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, maybe you can tell <laughs> us a little more about, so like how are you involved as a company when you're going to digital platforms mm -hmm. or uh, how much are you outsourcing to other companies or subcontracting to other companies when you're going to other territories? <coughs> um, up until basically January 1st next year, we've had an output partner with this company called Cinedime. Mm -hmm. And so Cinedime does everything. They negotiate most of the digital deals for us and they do placement into Walmart, into Redbox, that sort of thing. Um, we've negotiated our own deal for Amazon and for um, iTunes. Spend this much money to make this much theatrically. And um, from there, it's a bit of a crapshoot. You know, like, will, will Walmart take it? You know, will Redbox take it? Um, uh, we build a conservative model, and then we come up with a proposal for the rights holder, usually the sales agent. And we say, okay, this is, this is the dollar that we're offering, and this is the term. Um, the back-end terms, uh, the marketing commitments, uh, and then we put together, a, not a lot, not many people do this, but we put a, a marketing proposal together for each film that we go after. Say, this is how we're going to do it, this is how we're going to position it, this is how we're going to find an audience for it. So <clears throat> do you have uh, a position on day and date versus uh, different windows? Um, I prefer a nice, clean, theatrical window, uh, but only because that makes it easier. Mm -hmm. There's very few theaters in the country that will play day-and-date movies. Mm -hmm. um, so if you choose to go down that strategy, then you're, you're inherently cannibalizing most of your theatrical revenue. Mm -hmm. um, and that's annoying to me. Uh, we don't have any, for the draft house, we don't have any position on, you know, we'll, we'll play day-and-date, we'll play whatever. Okay. As long as it works. Um, um, but that that whole space is changing too. I mean, um, uh, there's there's lots more there's lots more players in the game. I mean, I think so there, a lot of people are trying to figure it out. Amazon, even though they haven't really released anything of consequence, they have a good model where they're they're going to set a four week theatrical window uh, and then go straight um, into uh, exclusive on Amazon. Uh, Netflix, I think, is a terrible model right now, um, <laughs> where they don't they don't give a damn about the theatrical revenue at all, and they're very upfront about it. I mean, why do you think that is? Because because they don't need it, right? Like they, it's not part of their their they're, they're a strange company. I mean, I, I like. I mean, it's amazing what they've done. Right. Um, it's this, they built an empire, um, and they pivoted at a really integral, a perfect time to pivot into the digital space. And then they, they again, at a perfect time, decided to go global. Um, uh, but I think they, you know, my personal feeling is I think they could have 
done it in a little bit more graceful way. Like they don't care about the um, the the collateral damage of the home video market, and they don't care about the collateral damage potentially of the uh, theatrical market, and they very easily could. Um, so it's just it's a little frustrating. As an exhibitor, do you find <coughs> yourself having to respond to them in certain ways, or as a distributor, um, have you changed at all as Netflix continues to? So change? I don't. So I don't perceive them as that much of a threat to the cinema business. You know, they don't have enough content that's they're going to make a big enough dent. Um, uh, and um, my statement all along about. Um, Going out to see movies is—I—I I, I think it's—it's it's viable. I mean, no matter how good your your home entertainment options are, at some point you want to get out of the house. Most people do, <laughs> um, and so once you get out of the house, we're just competing against the out of the house entertainment options. So we just have to make sure it's a good enough experience to compete against going to a show or going to a festival or going to have dinner or going roller skating or whatever. So I—it's. It's like a red herring argument to me that Netflix is going to kill our business, even though I kind of just said it. But, um, <laughs> uh, but it's, I don't worry about it. It's beyond my control anyway, and I, you know, we just focus on making sure that the theatrical experience is good. Um, right, right. So in terms of Netflix, we were just talking before class about how Netflix is changing sort of the business of acquisitions a little bit. I don't know if you want to say any more about what they're doing that is changing the sort of sales or licensing mm -hmm. market. Um, well, so Netflix used to buy territory by territory rights, and this is as recent as a couple of years ago, and they made a very strong push to start taking over countries, country by country, to offer their service, and it's obvious why they want to do it. It's, it's working for them. Um, but now what they do, they really curtailed um, buying anything, so they don't if you go on Netflix now, you'll see the lot of every month there's catalog, there's catalog titles that are just disappearing that aren't getting re-upped. So it's more about you know long form uh, television series um, and their own uh, exclusive content. Right. So they're they're funneling money into big guns in television and their own episodic content, <coughs> and they don't buy with. with just a few exceptions. They don't buy individual titles for North America anymore. They only offer this Netflix worldwide deal. Mm -hmm. And so that makes a really hard decision for a lot of filmmakers. And it's, it's destroying, um, not that it's a great business, but it's destroying uh, the international sales business. So there's this whole, like that back, backside of Cannes, there's buyers for Germany that are buying, you know, they have to fill up a slate for German television or for German theatrical or whatever. And so more and more, you're getting titles that Netflix, by, by taking the worldwide deal for Netflix, which is way easier than brokering 50 individual deals for your title, you get less money, but it carves out all broadcasts. So you, they, they're exclusive to broadcasts, which means you can't sell German television uh, by taking the global Netflix deal. And so it basically destroys every possible deal that you can make in those individual territories because nobody really wants to just buy a carved-up right on a title. It's a hard enough business. Right, you right. need all rights. Right. Um, so that's the big, like, atom bomb that's been dropped on the industry and over the past year. And that's in the last yeah, year. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So are there other companies that are also doing things that are kind of disrupting normal practice, or is it 
Netflix really the key one? Well, I mean, I think Amazon is going to follow suit. Like you're seeing them get a little bit more aggressive. They're, they don't have the same global <laughs> coverage in the Amazon Prime uh, subscription VOD space that Netflix does, but they're going to catch up. Mm -hmm. And Google is the other one. So I think between the three of those... Which is good. At least there's still three competitors. But that's what that's what world sales is. It's going to yeah. be those three for the foreseeable future. But it's all changing so radically fast mm -hmm. that something else could pop up. Yeah. So what? Um, just so our students know, like what are the major sales companies, or what are the kinds of groups or um, industry players that you tend to interact with? Like what sales agents, what other kinds of names should they be familiar with? Specific sales agents? Yeah, um, or companies. There's a ton of sales agents. Um, so, uh, and most of that information is pretty easy to come by through major film festival websites. So if you go to, um, it's probably listed on the Sundance site. And even if it's not, you could just contact the Sundance industry office and explain who you are, and they'll probably give you the list. Um, there's, a, there's a website that I subscribe to called Sinando, uh, which is like an industry. Every, every sales agent, every producer, every financier, every <laughs> distributor is there. I have an account. And then when you go to a festival, that's how you know what booth they're going to be in and what their email is. And... Um, you know, the two, well, I guess there's uh, two giants are William Morris and CAA. They, um, you know, going into Sundance, and that's their, that's their biggest turf is Sundance in Toronto. They'll probably be representing 15 films apiece. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, UTA um, is another giant one. But then you start getting it down into more boutique firms. Um, there's a great outfit called Submarine. Um, uh, this guy Josh Braun, who uh, we bought uh, a couple films from them, um, and th there's a, another company called XYZ, uh, which does well. They're they're complicated because my head of international programming is also head of international development for XYZ for for Fantastic Fest. Mm -hmm. So he's been with me. It's like there's so many conflicts of interest. It's, I just don't <laughs> even care. Um, so. They're producing films, and they also serve as a sales agent. You'll see that a lot where um, an entity will uh, put together financing for a film and sell it in the same shop. So have you done financing at all for any films thus far? Uh, three. Okay. Um, so is, is, how does that process work compared to distribution, if I can ask? Um, well, right now um, we have a film... Uh, it's called uh, it's called the Greasy Strangler. Um, that uh, this is somebody that was a short filmmaker, Jim Hosking, <laughs> who came to Fantastic Fest with his shorts two years in a row, and then we invited him to be in this anthology film we produced called The ABCs of Death, and he was in The ABCs of Death Part Two, with the letter G is for Grandpa. Like every. 26 filmmakers, each filmmaker is given four minutes and a letter of the alphabet, and every four minutes there's a death by that alphabet. So he did a death by grandpa. Okay. Um, <laughs> and we, we love this guy. He's never made a feature film, and we know he can work cheap. So um, my buddy that co-produced the ABCs of Death um, uh, got together with um, Elijah Wood, who has a production company, and um, Andy Stark, who produces Ben Wheatley's movies, who did uh, Kill List... Um, down Terraced, uh, the over, not the Overnighters, the Sightseers. Um, 
And so we all put in X dollars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and so we, we own worldwide rights, um, and it's going to hit the festival circuit this year, and we're, we're going to try to sell it. It's really weird. And so if, if we can't sell it, um, Draft House will put it out. So we're what's called a, dra a backstop distribution deal. Gotcha. Um, so I know that you recently announced uh, a new distribution venture. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe you can tell the class a little bit about, as much as you can, about what that's about and what, you know, what will happen to Draft House Films versus sure. this new venture. So um, the guy that got me into distribution, uh, I mentioned before, was Tom Quinn from Magnolia. He left Magnolia to start up a company called Radius. Um, their first film was The Bachelorette. Um, they also did Snowpiercer, um, uh, you know, probably, I think, 15, 20 movies. And that was a, a sub-company of the Weinstein Company. And so I also share a house with him at Cannes every year. And so I bring my family. He brings his family. We have, we have daughters the same age. And um, I, unbeknownst to both of us, he was working on trying to raise financing for a a new distribution venture to leave Weinstein, and I was trying to raise financing to get Draft House Films bigger. It's always just been self-funded through our venture. Um, and uh, maybe two-thirds of the way through Cannes, we actually talked to each other, because we don't talk about business because we're competitors. Um, so we had a couple drinks, stayed up late, and we realized that we were doing the same thing. And maybe a couple months later, we decided, why don't we just do one thing? And uh, so... Uh, we're going to fold Draft House Films into this new venture. Uh, I'll be partnered with Tom and his business partner, Jason Janego. And we went to Toronto to find that money, um, and uh, we just watched a couple movies, and we ended up buying a movie, uh, the new Michael Moore documentary, Where to Invade Next. But we don't have a name. We, we don't have a name. We don't have any money, and we shouldn't have bought it. But uh, <laughs> don't, nobody tell Michael Moore that. But, no, but it's knows. a great pretty... first acquisition. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good film, and it's got a lot of uh, box office potential. Uh, it's maybe an Academy Award contender for a documentary. Um, um, so we're and still... that's for next year? We're doing a qualifying run in December. So um, if all goes right, then we'll have The Look of Silence and Where to Invade Next competing for the Oscar. But I don't know. That's if yeah. everything goes right. Well, and that bringing up The Look of Silence. So uh, for some of you who aren't in the class but are sitting in may not know uh, that Tim League very kindly let us watch The Look of Silence at the Village a couple weeks ago, which the students are very appreciative of. Uh, and maybe you could talk a little bit about just sort of walking us through that project is an example of uh, where and how you, how did you come upon that? I know that obviously there's the act of killing prior, so that's bundled <coughs> in, but. Um, so it starts with the act of killing, and that was at Toronto, I think, three years ago or four years ago. Um, it's the first film I watched at Toronto, um, and I watched it, and I just couldn't, I couldn't even sleep that night. It was so, to me, it was so amazing and so, I don't know, challenging and um disturbing, mm -hmm. uh, that we immediately just put the spreadsheet to work and put an offer <laughs> in. Um, but we, uh, we didn't get it at first. They wrote us back and said, we appreciate your passion um, for the movie, but we're going in another direction. And so I ended up writing this really uh, um, long letter to the director, basically saying that I, I 
I refuse to accept this. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, this. You're making a mistake, and this is why you're making the mistake, and this is what we can do. And at the same time, they were having the, it, it was Danish money, Danish Film Institute money, um, uh, which the Danes do an incredible job of financing independent film production. It's, it's, it's staggering how much they do for such a small country. Um, so they were having the Danish premiere, and uh, we've actually released five Danish movies, or are in the process of releasing five Danish movies, so we know them well. The moderator for his uh, premier, Danish premiere was this filmmaker, Mads Brugger, and we had released his film, The Ambassador, the year before, which is a very, very hard film to release. Um, it was damn near illegal. Uh, it was no clearances at all. Uh, it's, I'm going off on a tangent, but I'll get back to it. Um, uh, so Mads went, he found out that you could buy um, ambassadorships between two struggling African nations for the sole purpose of setting up illegal blood diamond smuggling. And so he's like, oh, I'll do that. I'm going to buy an ambassadorship. Uh, and so with hidden cameras, he took Danish Film Institute money. They gave him a half a million dollars, and he just took it in cash, and he bribed all manner of government officials in Africa uh, uh, and went to these blood diamond mines and got, it, got the operation actually started. Um, um, and super wow. dangerous, super, wow. super dangerous. Um, but nobody on, on camera would ever agree to be on camera, so we sort of tested fair use. Um, so we, I, I wrote to Mads and said, please just tell Josh that we're okay. Like, we're not, because we were really young at that point, and that's why they didn't want to go with us. And so he, at that premiere, I think convinced Josh to do it, you know, so... So we got the film. Where was I? We were talking about something else. Uh, how you got Look of Silence. That's how I got it. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so how, you know, did you acquire it at a festival or Act of Killing you had previously acquired? So Act of Killing was at Toronto. Um, and we acquired it out of Toronto. And um, then we, it got nominated uh, for an Academy Award. And so we were on that process. And when we were doing our Oscar publicity, um, he said, oh, I've got another film. I just finished it. And we were... The act of killing took 10 years to make. He spent, he spent nine years in Indonesia immersing himself in that subject. Um, but in, in, he didn't tell anybody that he had, he had made another film um, <laughs> <laughs> while he was there. So he, he finished and he edited the act of killing. And he knew he could never come back to Indonesia as soon as the film was out. So before, uh, right before Toronto, he went back for three weeks and he shot The Look of Silence. Wow. Um, and then just edited it while he was doing his Oscar publicity. So how involved are you and your company in the marketing and publicity strategy? Do you hire, do you outsource that to a firm, or how does that work? Uh, we're very involved. I mean, we have a small team. There's, there's, only, um, there's only really five of us, um, and that includes me, and that, they don't have a lot of my time. And that, but I, like I say, we have, a, we have other assets that we leverage, like the accounting department of the theater, we use that, um, the design department, the video editing department, um, we largely cut our own trailers in-house. Um, uh, we do some level of the marketing ourselves, but then we always hire outside PR. Mm -hmm. And then if you're going into the Oscars, there's, there's like a handful of, literally a handful, maybe two handful, um, of Oscar doc branch publicists. Um, and you hire them. And mm -hmm. they get a flat fee. And then they get a bump if you get shortlisted. You get another bump if you get the nomination. And you get another bump if you get the win. And so they're in it for the whole process. Mm -hmm. 
um, but sometimes it caps out early. Right, right, right. So uh, just out of curiosity, like, do you have a sense of roughly these days with independent films or low-budget films, like what percent of money comes from box office versus other platforms? I mean, not for anything in particular, but is there an average? For, for independent films? Yeah. Uh, yeah, most, most independent films these days don't gross more than couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, under under half a million. Mm -hmm. um, and it just depends on where your threshold is for independent. I went to the Independent Spirit Awards uh, a couple years ago for for The Act of Killing. Mm -hmm. And so the big winner that year was 12 Years a Slave. I was like, why is that an independent film? That's got Brad Pitt in it. It's like a $20 million movie. Right, <laughs> it doesn't right. make sense. I think they, they, they eked in right under the threshold. Yeah. I think 20 is the threshold, and I bet you they spent more than that, but I don't know who's, um, so that's not an independent film in my book. Right, um, right. But truly independent without like star, without much star power, um, yeah, it's it's mostly gonna be under half a million. And and how much do you think can come from <coughs> other platforms these days if you count, if you're lucky as a distributor? Um, it all just kind of trickles in, you know? Uh, <laughs> So you hear about the big success stories, like right. The Bachelorette, for example, was stormed out of the gates, perfect um, film for sort of impulse buying, had a recognizable enough cast, and that did, I don't know what it was, six million mm -hmm. on VOD? Mm -hmm. It's probably larger than that now, but that was the number that was thrown out in the initial window. Um, that's super rare. Um, it makes you think that the VOD industry is really healthy, and it's not that. Um, most of our films, uh, on the, in the VOD window, make a couple hundred thousand dollars to two to four hundred thousand dollars on VOD. If that's a success for us, mm -hmm. some make almost nothing, um, and then you're just waiting for you know what little transactions to come through. We we go direct to consumer, and then iTunes is a big one that just is constantly just trickling in. Yeah, and then at some point we'll take the we take the Netflix deal, and then one, once Netflix happens, Netflix or Amazon Prime, then you get a sharp drop off in any kind of transactions because people. Yeah, That's it. I pay for it when you can watch it for free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, just to back up a little bit, what are the main divisions or how many people are working at Alamo in Austin versus elsewhere? Well, an individual theater, like a theater the size of Lamar or Slaughter, has close to 180 employees. And so, um, you know, overall we have 2,500 employees mm -hmm. um, in the head office where that's, we have an IT division. We have kind of a creative division, which is the biggest one. Um, we have um, accounting and development um, and operations. That group constitutes probably about 80 people. Mm -hmm. And does that include the Fantastic Fest people as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, maybe moving to Fantastic Fest, <laughs> like where it sounds like there's a lot of sort of intersection, right, between yeah. Fantastic Fest and what Draft House Films is doing. How much of what Draft House Films releases are things that fit under the Fantastic Fest mantle, or how does that relationship work? It goes both ways. I think um, we use Fantastic Fest to promote films. Mm -hmm. Like, so if we, if we pick something up in the year and it's appropriate, It'll play Fantastic Fest, and we'll, because we have so many journalists coming into town, we want to get the press coverage for those films. And that's probably like three or four films of the 75. <coughs> and then um, we're trying to get as many um, world premieres or international premieres at the festival. And sometimes, like it was a, there was a movie that we bought in 2007, I believe, called Bullhead, 
And so that played the festival, and then it won the Audience Award and it won the Next Wave like First Time Filmmaker Award. And because the, this is the first time that movie had played with a genre audience as opposed to like a traditional film festival audience, and they loved it. And so based on the reaction, we bought it. And that had been sitting around for a while. That played mm -hmm. at Berlin, and then we played it in September, eight months later, seven mm -hmm. months later, and bought it in October. Do you feel like the audience is different for who's going to Fantastic Fest versus the other festivals that you tend to go to? Or? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would presume that, but um, I don't know if there's ways you can speak to how or... Well, I mean, it's all, it's, it's, it's weird films. It's like horror, science fiction, fantasy, and um, just oddball, strange foreign language films. It's like, that's what I, that's what I really like. Um, so it's partially curated to my tastes. Um, but uh, usually the types of films that we play are relegated to the midnight section or kind of the more outsider sections of festivals, um, whereas we make, and, um, we make the whole festival around that kind of content. And so for Dress House Stones, I'm just trying to get a sense of like, do you, do many of them feature um, name talent affiliated with them? Do they tend to be like first time or up and coming filmmakers? Is there, are there certain genres that you've tended to favor? It's pretty all over the place. Yeah. Um, uh, not a lot of talent, not a lot of actor talent, you know. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of, strangely, as hard as this business is, it's, it's a really hard business. There's a lot of people in it right now, and um, so um, there's a what was it? The other movie that we tried to buy at Toronto this year was a movie um, called Hardcore, uh, and that was a really crazy Russian sort of first-person shooter type of for for 90 minutes. It's really like a brain bludgeon, um, <laughs> uh, but I like that sort of thing, um, and. We were way out of our depth. We were offering way too much money, and it eventually sold for this is for seven million dollars to a new startup-ish company, mm. STX Entertainment. Mm. Yeah, once you get something that's hot, um, then there's all sorts of people bidding on. I'm sure there was six other offers. Yeah. Um, well, and it seems like you've you've sort of alluded to the distribution landscape having a lot of new players in it right now, and I'm just kind of curious, who do you see as the major players and sort of the world you're working in, and how has it changed in the last few years, and why? I, I'll answer the last one first, because I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why so many people <laughs> just jumped into this game. Um, uh, there's some older stalwarts that have been there for a long time. Um, IFC and Magnolia have, are long established, and they built the VOD day-and-date model, basically. Um, and then there's some folks that are, you know, uh, Kino Lorber is still out there, um, and but of the newer ones, A24 is a pretty exciting company. Mm -hmm. They've got really good taste, um, and they're doing some fun marketing. I like their films. Um, there's uh, a company called Broad Green, which uh, bought a bunch. They they staffed up to seventy people, and they bought some really expensive Terrence Malick movies. <laughs> um, you know, they were up at 70, 70 employees, and they weren't going to release a movie for like five months. And I was like, ah. I, I, I don't know what's going on. So they're spending <laughs> a lot of money. We'll see if they get it back. Um, and uh, uh, gosh, what's some of the other? STX I mentioned. Um, and then there's, there's smaller ones. There's, you're getting to see people. We bid um, on this documentary called, um, it's a documentary about the presidential debates, uh, the Nixon presidential debates. Um, uh, a 
I'll remember it. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> so, and we also bid on this movie called Peace Officer that played at um, South by Southwest. Um, and so Peace Officer, we were the high bid, uh, but they said, ah, you know what? It's not high enough, uh, so we're just going to self-distribute it, basically. Mm. And so their their sales agent, Submarine, which I was singing their praises. I wasn't singing their praises that day. But uh, <laughs> uh, they offer to their filmmakers, you know, if you don't like the deal, we've negotiated uh, an output deal for you. So here's you can go direct to, not direct, but with an aggregator to iTunes and Amazon and Netflix and all these things. So... If you don't like the deal, we'll help you get your film out there into the world, which I think is really cool. And yeah. Sundance does that too. So if you get into Sundance and you don't get picked up, Sundance has kind of an, a channel that you can accept um, to get your film distributed. Cool. Usually it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe sometimes. It's sometimes, sometimes. Um, so do you consider companies that are sort of the conglomerate indies, the ones that remain, uh, like Searchlight, are those sort of just in a completely different world? I don't know. Uh, uh, Searchlight and Sony Classics and then Focus has reemerged, but I don't think they're really going to be playing in this indie space yeah. too much. Their, their, their aspirations are bigger, budget at least. Um, uh, and Open Road is uh, you know another con- competitor kind of in that um, Fox Searchlight space. Uh, Fox Searchlight, for a long time... It's, that was our bread and butter. Like for the theater side, any Fo- we play we play every Fox Searchlight movie, and it almost always works. Huh. Um, but they've had a couple of fumbles this year, and everybody's trying to figure out whether that's just a blip on the graph or that means something more significant. Um, uh, I hope that it doesn't mean anything more significant. And we compete against Sony Classics all the time. Yeah. I don't. I don't think. I don't think they like us. But. Uh, <laughs> um, but so they, we have a couple, we, we buy foreign language movies, and so, so do they. They're one of the few that do. And they're, they're able to do it a lot easier than we are because they can leverage big Sony, and they can actually buy, they'll buy foreign language, big, epic foreign language films, and they'll buy 25 global territories and make it make sense for the filmmaker and kind of take it off the table. Wow. Yeah, they've been a machine around for a long time. Yes, yes. It's impressive. So I know that you run um, Birth Movies Death also, and the students looked at that as well. Can you, what led to that, or how does that fit into what you all are doing? There was the, the moment about five years ago when I went, decided to go seriously into distribution, and that's, that, that was something of a plan where, okay, I'm, going, I'm committing to distribution. I'm also going to simultaneously commit to radically expanding the footprint of the theaters. We're going to try to open up. Our goal is to open up 50 theaters by 2019. Um, and then also, at that same time, we opened, we started what's now called Birth Movies Death. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea behind it, well, the incarnation of the idea was the guy who runs it, and it's his personality, Devin Faraci. He's a friend of mine. He was working for a site called Chud. Um, and uh, cinematic happenings under development, um, whatever. Uh, also a reference. And to I knew an about Chud, and I never knew that's what it stood for. Yeah. So there you go. It's also a riff on you know, <laughs> carnivorous humanoid underground dweller, which is the other Chud from the eighties. Yeah, um, I remember that Chud. That's the yeah, that's the better Chud. Um, <laughs> so he was at my house, and he was coming to this event we do every December called But Numathon, which is Harry Knowles' birthday party, a twenty-four hour movie marathon, and I 
probably inappropriately asked him how much money he made. Um, <laughs> and I was, it was a low number, you know, for, for being the voice of a site. And so, ah, I can, I can afford that. We can, so we hatched a plan that night to take him away from Chud and start this um, operation. And it was important to me that if we were going to have like a movie review and culture site that it wasn't um, like what Fandango does. Like Fandango has a similar type of thing, but like every movie's awesome, and so you just don't care. Right, um, and just pure marketing. Right, yeah. yeah, and there's plenty of things you can write about movies, but the, for better or for worse, and I'm pretty sure Devin hated Spectre, um, you know, opening weekend he's going to write about how much he hated Spectre, yeah. um, which maybe doesn't drive ticket sales, but it does... Um, for that weekend, but it hopefully engages a community that we actually have a point of view on movies, and not all movies are great. I, I love his writing. Um, uh, I think he's um, um, like he recently wrote a really strong piece about um, why people need to just uh, shut up about getting in Quentin Tarantino's business for um, uh, supporting Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, you know, he's having a crazy PR nightmare right before this film is coming out. It's it's completely uncalled for. But it's a little bit dangerous because us having an outlet that's writing about saying how stupid this boycott is puts us into a little bit of the crosshairs. Yeah, it seems like you have a lot, well, just generally, you have a lot of different interests in a lot of different things, right? And so is it hard sometimes to figure out how much to move and cover it this way or feature it this way? I made it from the beginning. I was like, you're a journalist and there has to be a separation. There has to be a separation of church and state. Like, I can't. The minute I start telling you what to write about is the minute we lose credibility. So my only defense is that I've given him complete editorial freedom. It's not necessarily the rights of me or the, the, the views of me or the company. It's, it's Devin's views, and it's, he's writing for his community. Is he based out of L.A.? Or? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, and do other people, I know other people write for that site. Do they tend to be sort of freelance type? Yeah. Oh, okay. There's two employees, three, three employees now um, for Birth Movies Death. Devin, he's got an editor, Meredith, who also writes for the site, and then they just, um, I think they're bringing on this guy, Evan Sadoff, who also writes for the site. Uh, but in a, he's freelance now. And so. so how much do you consider this um, a Tex- I don't know, Texas-based company or an Austin company? And, and just because our students are kind of trying to figure out, like, do I need to move to L.A.? Do I need to move X, Y, Z? Like, if you have thoughts about that sort of thing. Yeah. It's funny. I, I was at a panel at South by Southwest years ago. Like, I don't know. It's like early 2000s, and it was, I don't know why I was at this panel, but um, it was an acting panel, and one of the act- actors got a question. It was like, you know, I'm a, you know aspiring actor, um, uh, uh, you know, trying to make it in Austin. You know, what, what's something, what, is, what, sh- what, what are some things I should do? It's like, oh, well, the first thing you should do is you should uh, move away from Austin, <laughs> 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 which the audience was like, ah, oh, like shocked. And, um, but, I mean, as much as we you know, want there to be a really robust industry here. There's not. I mean, there's some industry here. There's some jobs here. There's some production here. But those jobs are pretty hard to get. Um, so, yeah, moving to a product, if you really want to get into the business, you have to um, for the most part. I mean, uh, there's a few jobs here. Right, right. And so if you get lucky, you can. But if you want to have best odds, if I were doing it, I would, well, I'd figure out what I want to do first, I guess. But then <laughs> probably have to, I mean, most of the businesses in L.A. Um, 
And you know, there's lots of pockets where there's production-related jobs in, in uh, states that have better incentive packages than our own, um, uh, where you can, if you're interested in that side of business, you can probably find, target 10 other cities that you can go to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, LA is where the business is. <clears throat> yeah, so are you out there a lot or? Yeah, we have employees there. So we have three employees, three of the five employees for Draft House Films are in LA. There's one in New York and then one here in Austin. And how, uh, you've sort of alluded, and I should have asked you this earlier probably, but like how do your responsibilities divide up now in terms of what are, what are you doing these days? Mm-hmm. What, how is your time allocated for the most part? Uh, say that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it, my, my focus changes. We, the whole company is built upon uh, like a quarterly goal structure. So uh, it's, we have our top five goals for the quarter, and we track those all the time. And, so, and then we have goal, top five goals for the year. Um, so it really my time is divided on tackling those five major things. It seems like my time is mostly spent answering email, but, um, <laughs> which isn't in the top five. Yeah, but. I think that's something that affects a lot of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, right now, uh, we're opening a theater in San Francisco. It's a very, it's a huge investment for me. It's was, it was, it was a ten million dollar project. We've never, I've never spent that much money building a theater. It's absurd. It doesn't make sense. Um, but in San Francisco. Right? Yeah, it's, it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> it's a full historic renovation, and so a lot of my money is tied up there, and uh, it has to work. And so I've, I'm going there tomorrow, and then I'm probably, I'm going to be there tomorrow mostly until December 18th when Star Wars comes out. So. Wow. Because it sounds like you're you're balancing with the exhibition, all the new venues are opening, right, and the programming, going to festivals to scout for content, and yeah. then starting this new distribution arm. Are there other things as well that are sort of factored in here? I like to spend time with my family from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, it's not like I'm run like I don't run Birth Movies Death. I don't have any involvement. Right. In right. Um, uh, and I. I engage at festivals to buy and acquire content. I'm there for the initial how we're going to market the film, but I don't. I'm not involved much past that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'll I'll dive into things deep and then I'll pull away and then I won't touch the project for six months. Uh, to the extent you can speculate, uh, what do you think are uh, some of the biggest growth areas or and and or the biggest challenges facing people that are involved in Either distribution or exhibition. There's a kind of the mer- I mean, the merging of um, technology and and film. Um, I think the, what's what's interesting in terms of um, how people are consuming is you're you're seeing these big libraries all get interested in it. Disney just launched kind of a subscription service. You know, if you're a Warner Brothers, if you're a Universal, MGM, they've got this huge library. You can imagine they're going to try to keep all those rights and have their own sort of worldwide subscription platform. So I think, I think um, you know, the cable uh, has just been operating for the last decade completely like this, just not paying attention. And I think their movements that they've been doing lately for the last year or so are just too little too late. Mm-hmm. They, they've lost, they've, I mean, they're Time Warner, you know, so they'll probably figure it out. But it would be, it wouldn't surprise me five years from now to have Time Warner not exist like it exists now. Like mm-hmm. people, I mean, I haven't had cable for eight years. Like I don't want it, I don't need it. Um, I, I, there's plenty of ways for me to get my content. Mm-hmm. Um, so just those shifting sands and then um, people's interaction with their own personal device and 
I think the expectations of of instantaneous and everything, you know, and how that affects content and specifically on your phone or personal device. I mean, that's there's lots of cool, fun things with like a creepy background, like how well they know you from right. your, your interactions in the world. <clears throat> Always being surveilled. I don't mind it. I like it. <laughs> um, well, that's great. I think I'm going to move now to opening up to the sure, audience sure, sure. for some yeah. questions, mm -hmm. if that's cool. And we have Tim with the handy microphone there. Okay. Um, so you mentioned the three big world sales buyers were Google, Amazon, and Netflix. I'm and Google's not there yet. There's okay, just, that's what seem, I was going to ask. They boys to do that. Like they have the network, they have Google Play, you know, but they haven't they haven't been a player yet. Okay. We can oh, is that, on I did a preemptive question? Sorry. <laughs> That's just conjecture on my part. That's, if I ran Google, I'd probably get into that. So. Um, I guess since y'all deal with a lot of like the movie-going experience and how people act in theaters, mm -hmm. um, with, like, the, with the three major shootings in the theaters over the past three years, does that, like, does that change the business at all? Or is there a trend in like adding security to theaters? Or is that something Alamo Drafthouse has like, considered? You know, it's still a pretty safe endeavor, you know, in terms of, like, driving your car, for example, much more much more dangerous than going to a theater. Like, your odds of being shot in a movie theater are really, really, really low. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, you know, there are obviously horrible incidences, and there's been too many of them, obviously. But I'm, I feel really comfortable with just how our theaters are laid out. We have tons of people. We have 180 employees. Like, a regular movie theater has... You know, you'll buy tickets sometimes at the popcorn counter, and there's like one person there, and all the theater starts are automatic. You know, there's no projectionist per se, so there's like three people in this hundred thousand square foot building. So for us, we've got people everywhere. There's people. The theaters are constantly monitored. Right. We do safety training for all of our staff. I'm comfortable. No, not to say that I feel unsafe at Alamo Drafthouse. That I just meant like the, well, there's I was a, gauging like the general opinion uh, in the industry since you. You What's know, coming up now, because the, most of the major chains have, have not, they're not allowing costumes for Star Wars, and I'm trying not to go on the record on it, but we're going to allow costumes. Like, come on, this is crazy. Like, I, I understand the, the knee-jerk reaction, but that's what I think it is. I don't think, there's, uh, I don't think there's any need for us to do more than we're doing now. We, we, with each of those incidences that you referenced, we always um, contact APD, we go over our security plan. We, you know, we we think about it, um, but we're, we're, so far we're comfortable. Cool. Thank you. Um, on birth movies, death. I read Devin and Meredith, but my absolute favorite is a uh, film crit Hulk. Yeah. And uh, I've read like all of his articles. How did you guys go about bringing him on? He just came to us. Yeah. He he was a reader of the site. Yeah. He's my favorite too. It's it's always a blessing when we can get him to write. He's got he's got another job. Um, because of some of the articles early on were so well received, he's gotten other writing gigs um, that pay better than we do. I mean, we'll take it any time. Um, but yeah, I, uh, that was just luck, really. Great writer. <clears throat> um, around the end of 2013, um, there was a large technological shift in how movies were distributed. I remember Wolf of Wall Street or Anchorman 2, one of those films, it was released around the Christmas year where it was one of the first films to be distributed digitally. I'm wondering if that changed, um, if Alamo Drafthouse business model had changed as a result of that technological change and whether or not you guys still buy film prints for new releases or if it, that's just mainly for older films. It's been a pretty transparent 
uh, is it transparent or invisible? I don't know. Uh, it's a, a small shift for us. Um, you know, the infrastructure for delivering a 70-pound film print um, is long established, and so it costs about 15 bucks. It just shows up. There's a company called Technicolor that does all the delivery services for it. Um, and so Technicolor, um, for a long time, uh, was they shifted from the big, heavy 70-pound can to a little box with, like, an Office Depot hard drive with a USB hard drive, basically, is how they still mostly come. We have a satellite on a couple of theaters that, to take the digital, to basically transmit the file digitally, uh, but it's still most of it is happening with a little hard drive. Um, so it costs about the same for us. I think instead of 15 bucks, it costs us 10 Somebody's making money there because it's probably a lot cheaper to ship hard drives, um, but it doesn't really affect us. Could you talk a little bit about um, why you pushed uh, for the for the theater, theatrical release of the interview? Mm-hmm. That was a weird. That was a weird time. Was that was that last Christmas? Yeah. Is it only? Yeah, it's only been ten months. Um, um, so we were looking forward to the movie because that type of movie does well for us. Um, uh, and then you know the Sony hack happens, and I thought it was humorous. Uh, uh, seeing how many people hate Adam Sandler and that sort of thing. Um, and then um, then it all sort of happened fast. So um, one, two, three, four, five, like all the big chains in Canada and the U.S. said, we're not going to support the movie because it came out, there was a what I perceived to be a fake threat um, came out saying, if any theater shows this movie, we will call a terrorist attack upon that theater. And, you know, um, so they, don't, they decided to pull support. Um, and that that made that pissed me off. Um, that's, so it's a series of things pissing me off here. Uh, and then uh, within f- four or five hours, somebody from Sony Marketing uh, came out with a release saying, "Well, we're pulling the film out of release because no theaters will play it." And you can imagine that that probably pissed me off too, even more than the first one, because we're like, "Hey, we're we're still here, and there's a lot of us. Um, we're the independents." Um, uh, so, and this is three days before Christmas, I think, three or four days. And so I am an active participant in this group called Art House Convergence, which is about 400 of the independent theaters in America. So we got this giant conference call together where the first move was to set up a petition. Um, so I set up the petition saying, sign here if you're an exhibitor and you're willing to, to show this movie. Uh, and so we got about 400 signatures on that petition. And then Seth Rogen himself uh, took that petition to Sony and said, see, I mean, let's just do it. And, and at the last minute, the day before Christmas, um, they said, okay, you can do it. And so nobody's in their offices. Nobody's even in the offices of Sony or bookers to book this film. And so it was one person that stayed uh, up uh, for the whole nation to, to confirm all these bookings and to get all those... Uh, those because uh, 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 Technicolor would, would be able to deliver them. It was just getting the paperwork done to get into the system. Um, so, yeah, so we released it on Christmas Day, and there was not a terrorist attack called upon us. So. <laughs> How's your decision to open a speci- like an Alamo Draft House in different cities? Mm-hmm. For example, with the one in San Francisco, with such a big investment, do you focus on like city demographics or... What exactly? I certainly didn't focus on profitability. Um, <laughs> yeah. So 
when that moment where I said, okay, I'm going to expand, and we're going to start Birth Movies Death, and we're going to start the distribution company for real, uh, I at that same time, I announced, like, I'm going to open up theaters in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. And I've been trying really hard. We have projects in all three. Um, uh, Brooklyn's going to open up in the spring next year, and San Francisco opens up the first week of December. Um, so that was willful. Um, the, I want those markets because those are really important distribution markets. So when you're opening a film, it's really hard to find a good quality run in, in those cities. And so if we control the theaters, we can make sure that we have a good launch of a film. And that means everything to the film, to open well in those three cities. And then that project, what, it wasn't on paper initially a $10 million project. It just kept on rolling and rolling. And then I'd already spent so much money. It's like, what do you do? You just keep on spending. Um, so it's, I don't know if that theater will ever make that money back. It's, it, but um, hopefully it'll be open for a really long time. It's going to at least take 10 years for us to even consider making that money back. And that's not, that's not a good investment strategy, just <laughs> in general. <clears throat> Hello. Hi. I was curious about um, binge television mm-hmm. watching and the role of theaters. Expo- it's just, I wonder if that's a mark anyone's thinking about on the theater side of getting into that business. We used to do it. We've just gotten cease and desist after cease and desist, um, and so we just basically pulled out of it. Um, I'd like to figure it out. One of the problems, so I've been told by, by lawyers on, um, uh, on their side, on the, the, the broadcaster side, is by doing theatrical exhibition, it changes the rate for everybody that worked on it from a television rate to a film rate, which is higher, um, which seems silly, but you know, it's, it's in a contract somewhere. Um, and I think all of those cease and desist are based upon that. Um, hopefully we can figure it out again, because it's great. Like, watching the season finale of Mad Men with, you know, and drinking the cocktails of Mad Men with 200 people, like, is, and, you know, not, I won't spoil the end of Mad Men if you haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's a, good, it's a good season finale, and that's, that is a theatrical experience in my book. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to do more. It's just where our hands are tied by some sort of weird contract minutia. <clears throat> One more question? Um, the Look of Silence was really good. And I also wanted to thank you sort of tangentially for giving um, the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival a home. We uh, screened exclusively at South Lamar, and that was really right. cool. But um, a question I have for you was just initially uh, sort of growing up and going to school in Houston. Uh, what drew you back to Austin after California? What made you decide to come back here of all places? Uh, I don't, have you ever, you ever been to Bakersfield? No, <laughs> sounds like I don't want to. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could I could show somebody a really nice weekend in Bakersfield. There's like one restaurant's really good, and there's like a really good place to go get drinks, and then then I'm at a loss. But uh, um, well, we knew we were going to move. Um, we had we had started planning that. Um, we just didn't know where, so we actually looked at five cities. I think we were looking at some. Smaller cities um, in Oregon, like Eugene, I think was one we looked at. We, I, look, I spent a little bit of time in southeast Ohio, and I, I grew up near Pittsburgh. So I went to Pittsburgh, and I really like Pittsburgh. Um, um, uh, we looked at Seattle. Um, yeah, but uh, believe it or not, Austin at the time was cheap. Like, the real <laughs> estate was cheap. I had a little bit of family here, a little bit of a support network, and there was no theater like it here. Um, it's the... I mean, 
I, the RTF department was actually part of it. Like the RTF department being here, South by Southwest being here, the Austin Film Society being here, and cheap rent. Um, it's, yeah, like it ticked all the boxes for us. Um, and then it took us a really long time to find a, 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 a home because, you know, we're 25 at that point, um, not very old. Um, and uh, our only business credit is one pretty spectacularly failed business. And so we actually, the, our 409 Colorado, where we eventually opened up, was our fifth choice. Um, we just kept on going down the road, and then eventually, if it was a good piece of real estate, they said, ah, I don't like you. You know, just, or just they wanted somebody bigger you know, that had more money. We didn't, have, we didn't have that much money. And so the place we got was the second floor of a parking garage. So we only had this much first floor access, and nobody in their right mind would have ever rented that space for anything else. And so it was it was available to us, and we we took it. But it was a lot of effort. It's six months of trying to find a, a home. <clears throat> well, I'm gonna uh, finish with the question we ask all of our guests, mm, which right. is, um, <clears throat> what movies have you liked recently, or what TV series are you watching right now? Right now, I just <laughs> finished the final episode of Nathan for You, um, <laughs> which I rather enjoy. And that's a really good uh, binge watcher for me because you sort of um, get these through jokes that roll into his neuroses about his relationship with women that sort of, <laughs> sort of gel and become great. Um, and I, uh, I'm, I'm in this period right now, post-Fantastic Fest, which was ended October 1st. Uh, I don't allow myself any TV for four months or so oh, wow. uh, going into the fest because I've got this stack of screeners and I have to watch yeah. them. I have to watch films. So now I'm actually... I'm, I'm scared because there's so many good things to watch on TV. Um, I'm being very selective. I'm going to finish season three of Nathan For You, and then um, there's the, I might watch documentary now, um, which I, I heard is funny. Great, yeah. I'll give it a shot. Um, you know, I watch a lot of the big cliched ones, you know, so. Uh, That's yeah. okay. Yeah, but they're still good. They're cliches for a reason. Breaking exactly. Bad is great, Mad Men is great. But, um, and then films recently. Um, I saw a documentary uh, that is one, I, we're not going to buy it because it, we're too late to the game. It played at the London Film Festival, um, and it's coming out in the UK in November, and that's the real problem for us, because it comes out in November, that means it will be pirated, it will, like, I would, I'll only want to release a movie like that if we're releasing it sort of same date across, mm -hmm. the, across the world, um, but it's a... Um, uh, documentary about a death row prisoner um, who spent 21 years in death row, and then at the end of his death row sentence, he uh, it stopped fighting and just asked to be executed. So it's a one-on-one -on -one interview with him, sort of Errol Morris style, but it's so riveting. Um, it's called The Fear of the Thirteen. Hopefully it'll find a home. We're not going to buy it, but uh, um, I saw that last week on a, uh, on a plane. And I shouldn't watch movies like that on a plane because I, I tear up really easily. Mm. And I was just sitting there crying on a plane. It's really embarrassing. So <laughs> I watched a movie called, uh, if anybody's seen it, Dear Zachary. Um, don't ever watch that on a plane. It's like, this, <laughs> like the saddest movie. Yeah, but it's great. It's great. Just don't watch it on a plane. So. Well, that is a not happy place to end, but a good place <laughs> to end. Uh, thank you so much. This is no great. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film 
in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, visit rtf.utexas.edu mic. This course was made possible through the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with lead TA Tim Piper, and the program was produced and edited by the technical TA, that's me, Kyle Rather. We hope you join us next time for another media industry conversation.